0: I was sad to hear that Tony Horwitz died suddenly on May 27th, the age of 60. He was a New York Times and Wall Street Journal reporter who was known for embedding himself in the worlds he wrote about, as the New York Times put it. His stories about working conditions in low-paid jobs, like garbage recycling and poultry processing, won on the Pulitzer in 1995, and he also immersed himself in the subculture of battlefield reenactors for a 1998 book called Confederates in the Attic, Dispatches from the Unfinished Civil War. And it was just about two weeks before his death that I talked to him about his latest book, which grew out of that experience and his desire to retrace the steps of someone who also wrote for The New York Times. You might not realize this, but Frederick Law Olmsted, who designed Central Park and about 19 Seattle parks, including, let's say, Green Lake and Woodland Park, was a correspondent for The New York Times and paid an undercover visit to the southern United States to see what it was all about. And now Tony Horowitz, who has served as a correspondent for The Wall Street Journal and The New Yorker, has decided to retrace Frederick Law Olmsted's steps in a book, He's titled Spying on the South. So why did you decide to
1: do this? Well, one, I was interested in uh, Olmsted, this uh, remarkable and peculiar genius who came to his great career uh, as a landscape architect by a rather circuitous route that included uh, going south on the eve of the Civil War uh, to write for the New York Times. And this is really what leads him in a roundabout way Uh, to his ultimate career. And I was also struck by the parallels between his time and our own. Uh, I don't think we're on the verge of a civil war, but we're certainly uh, at another very polarized moment in our history. So I thought his mission of uh, trying to uh, essentially cross the American divide uh, was a worthwhile one um, for this moment.
0: Right. Olmsted's journey was in the 1850s uh, during the run-up to the Civil War. So um, well, give us give us a thumbnail of where you went.
1: Right. Well, I really tried to follow very closely uh, Olmsted's path. He he actually took two journeys and I followed his second one that uh, began in Maryland and uh, goes across uh, Appalachia, uh, along the Ohio River, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, Louisiana and across a great deal of Texas. So that was the uh, the real body of my trip, mostly in Rural areas and small towns, though a few cities and uh, needless to say, <laughs> uh, often quite different from what Elmstead saw in his day uh, when uh, some of this territory was really the frontier.
0: And I'm guessing you found it was not a monolith, as many of us uh, up in the north uh, think it to be. But was there what was your big surprise during your tour?
1: Well, yeah, I think um you know, there was never one South, it was never a monolith, but that's particularly true today. There's just been so much demographic change, for starters, uh, in recent decades, immigration from abroad, uh, from other parts of the country. Uh, So it's, you know, uh, a city like Houston is now the most uh, ethnically diverse in the nation. Uh, You have pockets of uh, every population imaginable. So I think um, the sheer variety of the South and its many subcultures, whether you're talking about Cajuns in Louisiana or Germans in in Texas, uh, is really uh, the story of America.
0: I spent four and a half years working in Atlanta, and it surprised me this was in the early 70s, because I I had assumed that the Civil War was ancient history. And in fact, uh, it was not in Atlanta. And uh, I was still considered a Yankee. It was the first time I've been called a Yankee and you know have it not be referenced to a baseball team. So uh so today you coming in as an outside reporter, did you did you engage in debates with people?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um uh, that's what I do, well, not specifically debate, but I you know, I wander around uh as Olmstead did, uh meeting strangers uh, often in the evening at, at bars, at taverns. Um and yes, yeah, sometimes I would have outright debates but more i was interested in in listening and learning um and didn't you know uh, uh, can't pass for a southerner um uh, you know was open about being a a liberal yankee who lives in massachusetts um but i found that you know on a personal level um, you know, we can we can still sit down and, and talk over our differences in a in a civil manner, um, which we don't <laughs> do a, as a rule on on social media um, or, you know, through watching programs that uh, stereotype each other. So I think there's great value in, in you know, simply uh, getting out there and, and meeting people who may not uh, agree with you on many issues.
0: And so what was the most divisive issue uh, that you discovered in your travels?
1: Well, I was traveling really in the run-up to the 2016 election, and obviously there was a a lot of talk about a border wall. I would say immigration uh, was a hot topic just about everywhere, and I ended my travels, as Olmstead did, at the Rio Grande right on the border. Um, So uh, that was certainly a pressing issue. And, and, you know, in the South and in many parts of the country, gun rights, of course, is a a divisive uh, issue. And, you know, at times it it is a little reminiscent of the 1850s in that uh, there doesn't seem to be much room for compromise on on issues such as guns and particularly abortion. Uh, There's really no middle ground. And, uh, you know, that's a dangerous situation.
0: Yeah. Guns and abortion, that's going to be a tough one to solve. But on immigration, as you point out, Texas. This is a very diverse state.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Did did anyone you talk to say, "Look, if they would just do this, I would go along with it"?
1: Yeah, actually, Texas um, uh, it has a more nuanced uh, position. I mean, you know, I can't speak for you know a state with 27 million people, but it's been a mix for really for a very long time. This sort of Tex-Mex mix, particularly in the southern half of the state, and so. They're they're accustomed to that. They take pride in that. It's it's essential to their uh, economy, their 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 diet, really their their language. Um, So certainly, you know, you meet people who are, you know, wall them out. But there were many others who who said, you know, let's let's find some middle ground here. Um, So I think Texas is um, perhaps uh, uh, more open minded on that issue than uh, might be the case in other red states.
0: And what would that middle ground be?
1: Well, you know that's the problem. Uh, you know we're, we seem to be unable to to find it. But uh, you know uh, uh, something that's sensible and humane, uh, and that isn't simply um, building a wall, which Texans also recognize. It's just, it's not going to work when you see the border. You know, it's a, it's a floodplain. Uh, it's private land. it It's just, you know, as one person uh, put it to me, it would be like building a, you know, a castle on sand. Um, so it also just uh, isn't realistic to the situation at the border.
0: I mean, because the, the solution seems simple to somebody like me. The mm-hmm. Americans are not reproducing. We obviously need more young people. The people who are coming across the border are mostly young families who are physically able to do and and willing to do whatever you want them to do, why not raise the legal limits on immigration? Let people apply in their home countries. Uh, When they pass, Mm -hmm. tell them, hey, this is your ticket into the country. You don't have to have refugee camps or anything like that. We know who's coming in. And uh we know they can support themselves and we let them in without trying to keep the immigration levels artificially low and creating a a, a fourteen year long line to get in.
1: Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, we've always been a nation of immigrants. When Umstead is traveling Uh, You know, he lives in Staten Island in New York, where at the time about 40 percent of the population was foreign born. Uh, And he went to Texas where people were flooding in from all over, from abroad, from other parts of uh, of the U.S. So, you know, uh, we also seem to have, you know, lost sight of that. A few of us are more than a few generations removed from, you know, an immigrant from somewhere. Uh, But I think many people feel Uh, threatened culturally, really, uh, as much as they might uh, economically. I think it's a very emotional issue, this sense of losing their sense of of what America is. And I think uh, this isn't necessarily uh, subject to to rational debate. It's a very emotional issue.
0: But again, going back to Texas, talking about what America is, Mm -hmm. Texas was owned by Mexico. So the Mexicans had it first, and the Americans uh, basically flooded in and took it over. But Spanish has always been spoken there. And, uh, and the one of the main objections, the, the cultural objections that I, I keep hearing from people when this, when this uh, first started was, I don't want to have to press one to speak English. You know, English should be the default. I mean, but the Texans have been speaking Spanish for centuries. Why would that be a big deal, especially there? Uh-huh,
1: well, I think, as I said, I, I think there is a more nuanced view there, but um you know, we're in such a polarized moment that if, if you're a Republican and this is where your party is at, you're supporting them. <laughs> you know you're not going to support the other side, and uh, you know that's where we seem to be at on on so many issues. If they're against it. I'm for it. Or if my man is for it, then so am I. And, you know, it's this almost tribal allegiance we seem to have developed um, that, you know, it just drives us uh, further apart. And we seem uh, uh, almost incapable or certainly our political system of, of, of finding middle ground and, and taking effective action. Did the people
0: that you encountered have stereotypes about you being a uh, from Massachusetts, a highly educated Massachusetts journalist?
1: Sure, absolutely. And, you know, these things don't go very deep. I mean, many people have stereotypes about Southerners. And when you sit down and start talking, you realize you have a lot in common. But yes, they assume everybody in Massachusetts is a a wild-eyed liberal. So they'd be surprised to learn that, you know, uh, many of my neighbors are are gun-carrying, you know, Trump supporters. Um, They think that, you know, we're all sneering at them, um, you know, all sorts of uh, assumptions of, of, you know, of who, who I might be and how I might feel about them. But I didn't find it hard to dispel those uh, stereotypes. And again, I think it's the value of getting out there and having contact in that way is if nothing else, maybe it lowers the uh, the temperature a little bit and makes it harder for us to, to demonize each other because um, they're not seeing some Fox induced bogey of a coastal elite. I'm, I'm the guy on the next barstool.
0: So it sounds like you would recommend that uh, whether you're writing a book about it or not, everybody should visit a region of the country. They don't understand and just talk to people.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, it doesn't even have to be a a separate region. I I mean, we're also very divided between rural and urban um, and between, yes, coast and interior. So, uh, you know, uh, I don't know Washington state well enough to know what to recommend, but, you know, you don't have to go to the other end of the country to get outside of your, you know, your precinct, whatever that might be.
0: Yeah. Well, here in Washington state, really all you have to do to to get to Texas is cross the Cascade Mountains, and that's that's mm-hmm. kind of uh, that's kind of how it feels. And I think a lot of this, a lot of this divide has been artificially ginned up, probably by journalists like us because we like yes. conflict. But I've I've never sat down and because I, I I will debate people who disagree with me as often as I can, either by email or you know just meeting them uh, over lunch and it 's always been it 's always been friendly once you once you get beyond uh, once you get out of uniform, so to speak, right and just talk to yep. each other, things go pretty well
1: agreed and i i, I don 't know that we necessarily change each other 's minds when we have those kinds of conversations. Uh, But I think there's still value in having them and simply uh, sort of shouting at each other through bullhorns from our respective bunkers um, uh, only deepens, you know, the divide. Uh, So I think, you know, uh, making that effort is a a start.
0: So um, did you come away with any overriding lesson beyond that it's a good thing to talk to people? (laughs)
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I cover a lot of territory in this book, and and I was trying to see it through Olmsted's eyes as well. Um, So, you know, I saw a lot or learned a lot about how he felt about landscape and society and his remarkable forward vision that I think we can learn from. Colleagues called him long-headed because he was always looking, you know, far into the future of how a park would look 40 years from now. And I think we've lost that sense of of vision, where we're shrunken headed by comparison in this, you know, tweet driven times we're in. And also, you know, the value of of planning and aesthetics. I mean, to me, one of the saddest things often uh, in traveling America is the sameness of the landscape and the uglification of it, Um, the sprawl that makes every city look like any other. Um, and I think Umsted would be horrified by that, um, that we've allowed that to happen to this, you know, beautiful land.
0: Yeah, that was the reason that he likes to design parks. He saw them as places where different people could meet and get to know each other.
1: Yeah. And this is what interested me about his Southern journey. It's an unlikely route, but it's really in the South that he develops this social vision of public spaces like parks, bringing people of all backgrounds together, uh, really as a rebuke to the feudal slave-based society he saw in the South. He wanted to create these spaces that would show the the strength and promise of a free and democratic society, um, you know, really to lead by example. So that was a big part, uh, you know, we look today as these just peaceful green spaces. But he he was much more ambitious than that. He really uh, uh, saw these as tools to uh, bring Americans together.
0: So it sounds like the bottom line here is visit a public park and save democracy.
1: <laughs> yeah, well those those are, uh, those, are good, those are good ambitions. Uh you know, visiting a park is certainly easy. I hope um and uh you know, uh, appreciate the people around you as well as the trees.
0: Tony Horwitz's book is titled Spying on the South. Tony, thanks very much.
1: Thank you and looking forward to uh, coming to Seattle again.